If you are enjoying Paddywhack, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can find a link in the episode description. All my work is self-funded, and any support would be greatly appreciated. You are listening to Paddywhack. Written and performed by Francis Martineau. Episode 10. Och, I'll make a right fine baker out of you yet, young man. Take a look at him with that rolling pin, Bella. Did you ever see the like? But watch now, dinner all too thin. Scones need to be plenty high, you can. I tell your grandfather and your grandmother always liked them. Ever since I was a wee girl and my mother was a teaching of me. Ah, that's grand. Now you get to cut them out. That's the fun part. The boy was standing on a chair set close up against a table of old dark wood. In the middle of it was a thick slab of dough, white with black speckles through it. Currants, the cook had told him they were, when she'd taken them out of a large glass jar and mixed them with the dough in the bowl. Everything around him was covered with flour, not just the surface of the table, but the chair he was standing on, the floor round about, and his own arms right up to the elbows. For the cook had insisted on rolling up the sleeves of his shirt before they'd begun. She was right beside him now with her big white apron on and tall white hat that was pulled low down almost to her eyes. Her hands and arms were covered with flour as well, like an extra layer of skin, the boy thought. The other woman, the one the cook called Bella, was sitting knitting in an armchair not far away from the table. The silver needles were moving back and forth at great speed, and as they did so, they made a continuous clicking sound. She remained altogether still as she held the needles, as if they had a life of their own, and would keep on going, even if she got up and walked away. She had strange-shaped glasses perched on the end of her nose, and looked over the top of them at the needles as they clicked away. They'd been together in the kitchen for some time now, and apart from knitting she hadn't moved or said a word. He thought it funny that the cook kept talking to her anyway. But you nae think, Bella, that it's a crying shame this young man never got to ken his granny. I still canna get used to her being gone, though, 
To tell the truth, Bella, I do catch glimpses of her now and then, as if she'd never been taken away. I ken it sounds a wee bit daft, but I'll be climbing them stairs there up in the hallway, and there she'll be putting her hat on in front of the mirror as she always used to do before she went out. Then there was the one time I went into the music room to give it a dustin', and there she was playing away on her violin. It only lasts a wee while, you can, but long enough for me to be sure she's not gone altogether. The Lord may have taken her away, but there's still a wee piece he left behind. It must be for her comfort, do you think, Sir Bella? For it was quick and sudden like the way she were taken. The Lord always has his reasons, you cannot argue with the Lord. But poor Mr. Cochrane's never been the same. He was always so generous to others, but since she's been gone he's been in a world of his ain. Nowadays I had to ask him a question three times afore he understands what I'm about. You ken what I mean, Bella. But here I am blithering away and forgetting about them scones. Now where did I put that cutter? The boy watched as she opened a large drawer underneath the table and rummaged about inside. Then, above the clatter of the rummaging, he was surprised to hear Bella's voice for the first time from the armchair. It was a quiet enough voice, but every word was clear. "'You must be very careful, Mary,' said the voice, "'about what you say in front of the boy. "'You'll be putting daft ideas into his heed.' The needles continued the clicking in the silence that followed, and because she still hadn't moved while she was speaking, the boy wondered for a moment if the voice hadn't come from someone else. But then the same voice picked up again, and for the first time he noticed that her mouth was moving ever so slightly. "'It's all in your imagination, Mary. You get carried away with a fancy of yours, and there's no knowing where they'll end up.' Then after a pause. "'Dunna ye heed what she's on about, Sonny. "'It's all blither. "'It's stuff and nonsense, that's what it is.' At this she turned very slightly in her chair towards him, looking him directly in the eye from over the top of the glasses. Only at that moment did the needles stop moving. At the same time the drawer stopped its rattling as well, and it became so quiet that he could hear the sound of the wind outside, followed by a sudden spatter of rain against the window. The boy didn't know if it was the sudden quiet or Bella's look that gave him the urge to speak out. "'I remember my grandmother, I do,' he said as if to himself. "'I remember her playing the violin.' He heard the cook let out a gasp beside him. Och, and awa with ye. Do you hear what the young man's saying, Bella? He's telling us he remembers his granny. Well, and why should he not, Mary? It's only two years since she passed, and the boy would be already five by then. She still hadn't taken her eyes off him, 
even though it was obvious she was speaking to the cook. But now she leaned further towards him, pushing up her glasses from the end of her nose. And what is it you remember then, Sonny? I was sitting on the floor and I, I looked up. She was standing high above me playing her violin. He hadn't expected that he'd answer so quickly because he'd never been altogether sure that it had really happened like that. Oh, dear fancy, it was the cook speaking again. She'd opened another drawer by this time and was rattling about in that one. Who would that have believed it? I'd certainly be more inclined to believe the boy, Mary, than the fancies of yours, interrupted Bella sharply, turning immediately back to her knitting, the needles moving at top speed again. The cook pulled something out of the second drawer. Now what was I doing putting the cutter in there? I'm near my right mind. She leaned down and handed him what she'd taken out, a round circle made of dark metal, with another piece curved over in the shape of a handle. Now, all you had to do is press Dune on the top of the dough and give it a wee bit wiggle at the bottom so the scones come away clean. Then you line them up on this tray here with plenty of space between and we'll have them in the oven in a jiffy. The dough was very soft and he found that he hardly needed to press down at all for the circles to come out right. By the time he'd lined them up on the tray, there were three neat rows, twelve scones in all. Just as the cook was slipping them into the oven and closing the door, there was an extra strong gust of wind and a harder drumming against the window of the rain. Ah, there's a storm brewing, surely, said the cook. We'll no be going out in this kind of weather. I was hoping we could serve tea in the garden, what with the sun say warm this morning. He jumped down from the chair and went over to look out of the window, which was below the level of the driveway and right next to the front door. The moment he got there he caught sight of his mother and aunt, dashing up the front steps in the pouring rain, their hair already wet and stuck to their faces. He heard their shrieks of laughter and the stamping of their feet as they passed the window on their way up the steps. Then the door slammed. He stood there watching the rain bounce off the steps and the trees swaying about on the other side of the driveway. One of them was bending further over than the others, its leaves blowing about every which way. It seemed the wind would be able to take it away no trouble. An extra strong gust and it would be gone. He pressed his nose against the glass, feeling the cold of it and the slight movement of the window pane each time the rain hit it extra hard. He liked that he could be so close to the rain without becoming wet from it, like too how the trees kept bending further and further over in the wind. He was vaguely aware of the cook behind him still talking on, but because of the sounds outside he could no longer hear what she was saying. He was thinking about what she'd said about his grandmother and wondered if it really was possible to see people after they died. He wondered whether he'd be able to see her too and what it would feel like if he did. 
He had an idea that it might be all right, because she wouldn't be as scary as his grandfather. One of the reasons he loved being down in the kitchen was knowing he would never come across his grandfather there, as he had the morning before. He'd been exploring, making his way through the long line of rooms that through their high, big windows looked out onto the driveway and the garden beyond. He was taking his time, inspecting them one by one, when all at once there was his grandfather in the very last one, sitting at a desk reading a newspaper. Most of him was hidden behind the paper, so the boy didn't know he was there until it was too late to turn back. He was already inside the door by the time they saw each other, and his grandfather had jumped to his feet, letting out a startled cry at the same time, the kind of sound he'd never heard anyone make before. Their eyes had met for a brief moment before he turned and ran, sprinting really fast all the way back through the line of rooms and out the front door. Only when he'd made it to the driveway did he feel safe enough to slow down, although the day was pretty much spoiled from then on, and it was a while before he'd risked going back into the house again. The only time he saw him otherwise was at mealtimes, but he was always careful to sit as far away down the table from him as he could. He was also careful not to look at him while he was eating, because the way he ate brought on the giggles. He bent very low over his plate and slurped the food up into his mouth, one quick spoonful after the other, and just listening to the noises was enough to set him off. He knew that losing control of himself that way was the very worst thing that could happen, for his grandfather was so very serious all the time. He couldn't remember seeing him smile once since they'd arrived, and even when his aunt and his mother laughed together at the table in their usual way, he never joined in. In fact, the boy was pretty sure from the look on his grandfather's face that he didn't like it one bit when they laughed together, and he kept expecting him at any moment to tell them to stop. He'd found a good place to hide away in the garden, though, as long as he kept a good watch out for the geese before crossing the driveway. They'd given him an awful fright after lunch, on the first day when he'd gone out to look for his mother in the garden. A whole bunch of them, honking and hissing, had come charging at him, the yellow beak stuck out low in front and ready to make a grab at him. He'd only just made it to the garden gate in time, and he was sure they would have caught him if he hadn't vaulted over the gate instead of opening it. When he took his nose away from the window, a smear of flour was left behind in the middle of the glass. He rubbed it away with his hand before turning back into the kitchen, noticing at the same time that Bella's armchair was now empty, her knitting rolled up, neatly on a little table close by. The cook was opening the oven with thick gloves over her hands, and he watched as she drew out the tray of scones. 
They were all golden in their neat rows and at least twice as high as when she'd put them in. You've done a grand job with these, young man, she said as he came back up beside her. Just the way the master likes them. But we'll have to clean you up or hurry your tea. You can't get begun up back upstairs covered in all that floor now, can you? Come over to the sink here and I'll give you a wee bit of a scrub. She took a cloth from the side of the sink and ran it through with water, squeezing it dry before applying it to his arms and face. Then she ran her hands through his hair for a moment and messed it about. Ah, oh, you flew it in your hair as well. What will they think we've been doing with you? They'll never be letting you come back if we're not careful. Oh, are you gang then? And tell them upstairs to be getting ready for their tea this minute. We can't be having them fine scones as you're sitting about. Serve them cold, or oh, they're near the same at all. April 15th. Dear Kyle, I hope my last letter has got to you by now letting you know about Colin's birth. By now I was expecting to feel stronger so that I could catch you up on more of the details, but given how worn out I am still, this letter is unlikely to be much longer than the last. The birth has taken a lot out of me although I'm glad to say Colin himself seems to be in very good fettle. The only trouble is, he doesn't seem to be getting enough milk from me, and this produces a lot of frustration when he's feeding. The doctor wants me to give him a bottle of supplement, but I'm not willing to go that road yet. As far as I'm concerned, it's too early to make such an important decision. But I wanted at least to tell you that Cecilia did manage to get here for the birth, and truly I don't know what I would have done without her. The labour was very long, and she gave me the courage to keep going. She's already left, though, and it's not so easy now with only my mother around. I think of you when I look at Colin, for there's no question who the father is. Of course, I keep wondering whether you're out of the hospital yet and hoping for the best. It's been some time since I've heard from you. March 22nd was the date on your last letter, more than three weeks ago. That's all I can manage for now. I'll write again soon, but you'll have to put up with shorter letters until I'm feeling more myself. Much love, Becca. The room the boy slept in at his grandfather's was right at the top of the house. There was a large, wide staircase that connected the first floor to the second, where his mother, father, aunt and grandfather all slept. Then there was another winding stair that climbed still higher and ended up in a single room like a tower. 
It was entirely round except for where a single window jutted out over the driveway and gave a view over the garden. If he leaned far enough to the right, he could see the gate he'd jumped over to escape the geese and the bench where he'd found his mother when he'd gone looking for her. The morning after he'd made scones in the kitchen, he woke much earlier than usual. There was only a hint of light coming in through the window, but as he watched, everything in the room brightened little by little. First the sink, because it was nearest to the window, and last of all, the chest of drawers at the foot of the bed. He could tell from the quiet that nobody was up yet. On other mornings he'd come used to hearing voices from below or footsteps on the stairs, but so far there'd been not a hint of either. He didn't in the least feel like going back to sleep, but at the same time he knew if he got up this early there'd be no place for him to go. It was even too early to go down to the kitchen and spend time with the cook, which was usually how he started his day. He waited in bed until the whole room became light, then threw off the blankets and tiptoed in his bare feet to the door. He half opened it and stood there listening, hoping to pick up something that would let him know he wasn't the only one awake. But there wasn't a sound. His feet were already beginning to get cold, and he was on the point of closing the door and going back to bed, when faintly and from what seemed like very far away, he heard something that was nothing like either a voice or footsteps on the stairs. There were times also when he'd heard his grandfather snoring from his bedroom closest to the winding stair, but it wasn't that either. He stood at the half-open door listening as hard as he could. But there was only the quiet and he began to wonder if his ears had been playing tricks on him. It was darker on the winding stair than inside his room, but there were spots of bright light he could pick out in the passage below, a passage which led past all the bedrooms to the top of the main stairway. If he hadn't noticed those few bright spots, he would probably have gone back to bed. But they gave him the promise he needed to explore further, and the next moment he found himself running down the winding stair and standing in the first spot of light he came to. Once there he discovered that the light was coming from the sun, which was peeping out through a gap in the trees on the far side of the garden. He paused there for a moment, unsure whether or not to continue on, until again he heard that new sound coming from very far away. Quite certain it was the same one he'd heard before. He still had no idea what it could be, but it was more distinct this time and made him wonder if it wasn't running water. Yes, it was the sound of the river he was reminded of where he and his father had gone fishing but that couldn't be right either, because he knew there was no river near his grandfather's house. 
He would have been sure to have found it by now if there had been. Besides, it was definitely coming from somewhere inside the house, from one of the long line of rooms downstairs, most likely, and the only way to find out which one was to continue on down the main stairs. He wondered for a moment if he shouldn't get fully dressed before going any further, but then he would always have time, if he needed, to run back to his room if he met someone unexpectedly on the way. There was certainly nothing to prevent him from making his way along the passage to the top of the stairs and finding out if he could hear the sound even more clearly from there. On tiptoe, so as to be sure and not wake anyone up, he passed one by one the closed bedroom doors until he was right at the head of the stairs. He paused again there, and yes, the sound indeed was that little bit louder, and he could feel it pulling at him now, making it impossible for him to turn back. The main stairs didn't have much light on them, but they weren't nearly as steep as the spiral stairway. He was at the bottom in no time, and already making his way, still on tiptoe, through the same line of rooms he'd explored on that first morning. At first, though, he didn't recognize them as the same, because they were so dark. Heavy curtains were closed across all the windows, the sofas and tables, only vague shapes that he passed on his way. But then all of a sudden he remembered where he was, and came to a sudden halt. What held him back was remembering his grandfather's face, as it had appeared from behind the newspaper that morning, as well as a strange-sounding cry that he'd made. It was in the last room of them all that he'd found him, wasn't it? And what if he came across him again? For there seemed to be no doubt, particularly now that he'd stopped and was listening more closely, that the sounds were coming from that same last room. He was looking ahead now, and what had drawn his eyes forward was not only the ray of light streaming from the room's open door, but the knowledge certain now that it was music he was hearing, and it was being played by someone on the other side of that door. He hadn't recognized it as music at first, because it was unlike any he'd ever heard. It was so much larger, for one thing, and already, even from this far away, he could feel himself being taken over by the sheer size of the sound. He stood there in the dimness of the last of the curtained room, not knowing what to do. There was the bulk of a sofa on one side of him and two large armchairs on the other, the one furthest away from him, so much in the dark that he could barely make out that anything was there and it was already beginning to bother him that he couldn't see it more clearly, for the more he peered towards it, the more the idea came to him that, without his knowing, someone could very well be sitting there, sitting quite still and watching intently, as if curious about which way he would choose to go. The most surprising part was that he wasn't in the least afraid there was rather a feeling of comfort coming from the chair. It was clear that if there was somebody there, 
that somebody was prepared to help him, wanted even to encourage him to keep going. He kept thinking of what the cook had said about seeing his grandmother and what a comfort it had been to her also. When she talked to Bella in the kitchen about it, she had never said anything about being afraid, and he understood why now, for every time he thought about turning back, every time the memory of his grandfather's face became too strong for him to bear, an exactly opposite feeling came from the chair. It was something more powerful than words, preventing him from turning back, while at the same time making him brave enough to move on. Step by single step he came closer to the light in the door. The power of the music, larger than ever, and sweeping away any trace of doubt that remained. But what he was not prepared for, when after one last hesitation he stepped fully into the light, was the shock of its glare. But it was in the full floodlight of the sun he found himself, its rays streaming in at an angle from the window of the opposite wall. It was so blinding that he could see nothing inside the room. His eyes had instantly screwed tight closed against the glare, leaving only the strength of the music vibrating through his very bones. As far as the music was concerned, he didn't need to go any further now, and he had no desire to reopen his eyes. It was enough to be simply standing there and letting it pour into him. You would never know how long he stood there in the doorway, taking the fullness of the music in. But it was only very gradually that the glare of the sun lifted off him, sufficiently to allow him to open his eyes and see clearly into the room. Nearest to him were some newspapers on a desk, along with a tall lamp with a green shade standing to one side, and in an instant he recognized the desk as the one his grandfather had been sitting at that morning. There was a shock in the recognition, but there was also a relief because nobody was sitting at it. The newspapers, rather than being read, had been neatly folded away. Very slowly he raised his eyes from the level of the desk to look further into the room, and what he saw rooted him to the spot. There was no question that it was his grandfather, although for the briefest of moments he wondered if it might not be somebody else. So different was he from either the man who'd started up from behind his paper or the one who'd sat at the head of the dining-room table and slurped up his food in such a funny way. It was the change in his face that struck the boy most. Not only was it the first time he'd seen him smiling, but his eyes were all bright as well. The boy could only see him from the shoulders up, because he was sitting at what the boy knew by now must be a piano, even though it was nothing like the one his mother sometimes played at home. It was long instead of tall, and extended far out into the room towards him, 
its shining black lid propped high up on a stick. Every now and then a hand would lift up high enough to be seen, hovering in the air for an instant before dropping back down, while all the time the music continued unbroken, the most astonishing combinations of sound he'd ever heard. He stood there transfixed, caught between the power of the music and the fear of being seen, for it would now take only one upward glance on his grandfather's part for his presence to be known. And when that happened, he knew without question that the smile would be gone and the music also. He would leap up, just like he'd done from behind the paper, would let out that strange cry and be even more horrified at seeing him than he'd been the first time. It could happen any moment now, but if he acted immediately, if he ducked down out of sight, turned and ran right now, nobody would ever know he'd been there. Every second he waited made it more dangerous, but even though he could scarcely breathe by this time, even though his heart was hammering fit to burst, he could not tear himself away. The music held him there despite everything, waves and waves of it riding in one after the other, each more glorious than the last. The sounds were becoming softer and more peaceful now, and he noticed how his grandfather, still with that hint of a smile on his face, had closed his eyes and was hardly moving. But the music was still there, so he knew that at least his hands must still be moving and there was a part of him that longed to move in closer and take a look at what they were doing, to find out how music like that was made. Little by little, the last of the sounds faded away, although what followed was different from any quiet he'd ever known. For too much was still happening inside of him, holding him there, even though he knew without question he was being given one last chance to leave. For his grandfather's eyes hadn't opened yet, and he could even now slip away unseen. But with the music still filling the room, how could he possibly be sure if he turned and ran that it would come with him? There was a chance he could be leaving it behind forever, and that will be the worst result of all. Besides, his grandfather might be getting ready to play again, might simply be waiting to start all over. But in the next moment he knew that wasn't right, for his grandfather had finally opened his eyes, and he was caught. A quiver went through him as their eyes met, and it seemed as if his heart had stopped beating once and for all, waiting as he was without breath for his grandfather's face to change back. But no, it was staying more or less the same after all. The only difference was how his bushy grey eyebrows shot way up into his forehead, making his eyes even larger and brighter than they'd been before. Andrew? he said in almost a whisper. Up and about, 
at this time in the morning? Oh, dear. I'm afraid I must have woken you up with my playing. Then after a pause, and very gently, on you go back to bed, and I promise I won't keep you up any longer. Now that he was well and truly caught, the boy was trying to find the words to say how sorry he was. But the gentleness of his grandfather's voice was so unexpected that he could only stand there with his mouth half open. For the apology he was trying to get out was already being taken over by an even stronger desire to set his grandfather right, because he was altogether wrong in thinking it was the music that had woken him up. How could he begin to explain that his being there had nothing to do with being woken up, and that it was he who had chosen to come looking for the music in the first place? How could he possibly let him know how much the music meant to him, how the last thing he wanted was for it to stop? What made it all the more impossible was that the music was still going on inside of him, and he was too full of it to be able to form the words he needed as well. His grandfather was getting up from the piano now and coming over to him, which he wouldn't have minded if his face hadn't already begun to change back. The smile and the bright eyes were gone already, and when he spoke again there was no longer the gentleness in his voice. Rather, it was so loud, he seemed almost to be shouting. "'I hear you're off to school in a few weeks,' he said. You, you, "'You must be looking forward very much to that.' Now that his grandfather was so much closer, with his shirt, jacket, and tie all neat and clean-looking, the boy was suddenly embarrassed to be only in his pyjamas. At the same time, a shivery feeling came over him and his whole body began to tremble in a way it had never had before. It wasn't the usual trembling from being cold, and he knew it must have something to do with the music, with the fear that was now coming over him that he was going to have to leave it behind. There was a moment when his grandfather had first spoken to him so gently that he believed he was going to be allowed to stay longer, imagined what it would be like to talk to him about how much he loved the music, even ask him to play some more. But now that his grandfather had changed back, he really was going to have to leave, and all he could think about was how he was going to be able to make the music last. He turned his eyes towards the piano for help, stretching himself up taller and noticing for the first time a glimmer of gold underneath the lid. He would have loved to be able to take in the notes as well, but they'd remain hidden all this time, and a wave of sadness went through him when he realized he would never know how his grandfather had touched them, would never know what his hands had done for the music to sound like that. As he stood there in front of his grandfather, he could feel the sadness begin to grow to the point that he was now trying with all his might to hold back tears. How he hated that they were always there when he least wanted them, and here he was one more time having to turn away before they betrayed him. For in the end it was only the fear of his grandfather noticing them that forced him back into motion, tore him away from the place where the music belonged. 
He spun around and ran at top speed, back through the darkened rooms, back up the wide stairs, and past the still tightly closed bedroom doors. Leaping two steps at a time up the winding stair, he tripped on the very last one and nearly fell headlong, putting out a hand in time to save himself before making a dash through the door and a final leap into bed. He pulled the blankets up high over his head and lay there very still, waiting for both his breath and the thumping of his heart to slow down, waiting above all for what he was so desperately hoping had not been left behind. But to his dismay, what burst in upon the silence was the harsh cackling of the geese as they turned in at the far end of the driveway. Closer and closer they came, the hideous sound rising to a climax as they passed under his open window, a clamor so frantic that they could very well be invading the room itself. Even the blankets over his head had no power to block them, and as a last resort he stuffed his fingers into his ears, pushing them ever deeper in a final effort to keep them out. He couldn't tell at what point they were gone, for there was only a hint of silence before they came from the far distance. What he'd been longing for came that tantalizing sound he'd first picked up from his half-open bedroom door so very long ago. But he knew it more thoroughly by this time, and there was no mistaking it as the volume grew ever stronger in his ears. Neither the slamming of a door down below nor the heavy tread of footsteps on the stairs right after had any power to compete with it. He'd managed, after all, to bring it with him, and now it would be his own forever. Cecilia's Diary, July the 28th, 1946. Tomorrow morning, after breakfast, we'll be on our way. And here I am, sitting up late in the music room with my diary, knowing it's going to be a while before I'll have a chance to write again. There'll be such a backlog of things waiting to be done as soon as I get home, and I can't say I'm looking forward to it. It's been such a special time. The first family get together for as long, and it's all gone so smoothly. It made such a difference that Gillian could come too, and we had so many fine moments reminiscing about the past. She brought back some things, and I brought back others, and between the two of us, our childhood really came back to life again. At one point, we were caught up in it so completely that we didn't notice the weather was changing. 
All at once the rain was pouring down, and even though we ran for our lives, we were soaked to the skin before we made it inside. Gillian even remembered Julian, which was quite a surprise, because she was no more than six when he moved away. The fact that she remembered him had me telling her for the first time how fond I was of him and how upset I'd been when he left. That confession got her going on how madly she fell in love with Ivan during her first stay in Romania. We realized we were exactly the same age when we first fell in love and laughed fit to burst at how utterly besotted one can become over a man at the age of fifteen. There was more than the humorous side to it, though. She admitted a deep sadness that it had all turned out so badly. I went so far as to say it was a good job Julian had moved away when he did, otherwise I would have ended up in the same boat. It wasn't easy for me to hear that, and I tried to point out that Julian was a very different cup of tea from Ivan. She scoffed at that, and I surprised myself by defending him quite fiercely. Not that it really made any difference to Gillian's point of view, which seems to have become quite bitter as far as men are concerned, more so than I would bargained for. It doesn't exactly bode well for her if she wants to settle down eventually into a more regular life, something I'd really like for her. I have to admit, though, that my spirited defense of Julian could well have been influenced by how distant Henry's been the whole time we've been away. It's true that he's never had much idea what to do with himself on holiday, apart from fishing. Also true that he's never been very much at ease with my side of the family. The combination may have been a bit much for him, and I'm sure he's constantly reminded when he's here of how little family unity he had as a child. He might even be a bit jealous, although he's never been much interested in talking to me about his own childhood. Every time I try to draw him out, he either insists there's nothing worth telling, or he'll make a joke about what, under the humor, sounds like a pretty grim detail. His nanny with a stick. And although he'll do a hilarious imitation of her, I still have no idea what the nanny did with that stick, or what it felt like to be on the other side of it. As the first boy, much, I'm sure, was expected of him, and a lot of the time I think he's still trying to come up to the mark, and that applies to how hard he works as well. When he doesn't have his work, he seems to draw in on himself, and to tell the truth, I've no idea whether he had a good time this month or not. He really made an effort at this evening's farewell dinner, though, such a perfect ending as it was to our visit. Mary and her crew did us proud, and I hadn't seen Father in such good form for ages. It's obviously made a big difference to him, having us all at home for such an extended period, and he's grown more and more relaxed. Not that relaxation has ever been his strong suit, but his nervous tics have definitely become less pronounced, and there were a few evenings after Andy was in bed that I got him to talk a bit about the old days, something he rarely did even when Mother was alive. I was so encouraged I took the risk tonight of asking him to play for us. I knew it would be a sensitive area, and for that reason left it to the very end of our stay. I wasn't even sure if he'd been playing at all since Mother died. Anyway, having poured him an extra-large brandy, 
I plunged in, and to my surprise the question didn't put him out at all. In fact, he was very clear in his answer, letting me know for the first time that playing in front of an audience was something he enjoyed only when playing with mother. Even when he was a student at the conservatory, he said, he'd been very nervous playing for exams and such like. So it had been a relief to meet mother so early in his studies and know right away where his musical gifts could be best applied. He even joked about it, saying that from the very first concert he played with her, he realized she had enough confidence for both of them. She was the one, he insisted, who was the true musician, and he was only too happy to support her in any way he could. It's typical of his modesty, I know, for him to say something like that, but given what I know of Mother's history, it's probably not far from the truth. All of us have been familiar since childhood with the story of how her mother put a violin into her hands when she was only five, convinced even then that it would become the center of her life, <laughs> which of course it did. But there was something very moving about he spoke about all this. Not only was there a lot of information I hadn't heard before, but it also gave me a more lively picture of how they met so long ago in Dresden and hit it off so well. Apparently the only time he plays for himself now is very early in the morning. He doesn't sleep much, he said, and prefers to get up and play when nobody's around rather than lying awake in bed. I noticed Andy sitting on the other side of the dinner table quietly listening. There were a few times I even wondered if he wasn't going to say something, hoping actually that he would, because there hasn't been much contact between them. Not that I'm exactly surprised, because I know how desperately awkward Father has always been around children. He doesn't leave much of an opening for them, and Andy's not the kind who's going to make his own move without some encouragement. It's hard to believe he's off to school in less than two months, but I'm very glad I managed to persuade Brian to take him a year early. He's always been so eager to learn, and Queenie gave him an excellent foundation. I've tried to take her place as best I can, but with so many other things always waiting to get done, I've not been very consistent, and he may have lost a bit of ground. But it'll be a big change for him all around. I only hope he's ready for it. I still have to talk to Henry about how we can best prepare him for the largeness of the change, and the part I'm most concerned about is how strongly Brian believes in physical punishment. Last time we met, I didn't like that glint in his eye when he mentioned what he calls the paddywhack. Nothing like a bit of the old paddywhack was his parting shot, I remember. Works wonders on them. Well, I'm not so sure about that. It may work wonders for some boys, but Andy is different from most, and I've never considered spanking as an appropriate punishment for him. Henry's never gone that way either, although it's obvious, starting with the nanny with the stick, that it was an accepted routine in his childhood, both at school and at home. <laughs> I noticed that he laughed when Brian made this quip about paddywhack, as if he took it for granted as something that Andy was going to have to deal with the same way he did. Anyway, 
We have to have a talk about it sooner or later and see what ideas we can come up with. I wanted, while we were here, to quiz Julian about those headaches of hers, but she seemed so much more on top of things than she's been for a while that I didn't want to bring her down, particularly knowing how much she's looking forward to getting back on Diamond as soon as she gets home. I know they're still bothering her, though, and I've caught her losing her balance several times in the last month, which is not like her at all. At least there are another six months until the next racing season, so she can take it slow. Not that when it comes to horses, Gillian has ever taken anything slow, but it'll give me more time to keep my eye on her. I'm going to miss this music room. I feel so close to Mother as soon as I settle into my writing here. The longer I stay, the more I feel her with me. I should stop, though, and go to bed or I'll be a wreck for tomorrow's drive. It'll be hard enough leaving Father all alone once more without being exhausted as well. The 15th of April, 1943. Dear Becca, if things had gone the way I'd like, I'd be with you by now. And the fact that I'm not has put me in a pretty foul mood, I have to say. Perhaps writing to you about it will make me feel better, even though it's unlikely this letter will get to you before I do. Indeed, it had better not get to you first. But I've lots of time on my hands right now, so I thought I'd try and catch you up with what's been going on anyway. When I last wrote, if you remember, I was completely up in the air about when I was going to get out because of this new doctor who refused to give me any kind of time plan. Well, it was only two years later that the head surgeon did his routine round along with the doctor, and he had me out within an hour, papers signed and everything. It was actually the last thing I expected, because my shoulder had begun to hurt again after a week of giving no pain and I was sure the surgeon was going to examine it and find more work that had to be done. But it's becoming increasingly obvious that they're not being picky these days. The number of wounded coming in has increased dramatically in the last week, and they're desperate for bed space. Anyway, I said nothing about the new pain in my shoulder, and I was out of the door with my leave papers before I could even figure out what was going on. It was almost too fast, because in the process I missed out on a rather crucial bit of information. I put your address down on the leave form as my destination, believing the transport would be taken care of all the way, but the guarantee was actually only as far as Algiers, and I only discovered that when I got there. I certainly wasn't prepared for the pandemonium that met me as soon as I got off the plane made even worse by the long period of protection my stay in the hospital had given me. Nobody seemed to have a clue what was what, including all the people I was directed towards for help. It was a matter of pestering one bloke after another for some kind of reliable information and finding that each had a very different story to tell. I was two days there before I managed to get myself onto an already very full boat headed for Gibraltar. I'll spare you details of that terrible conditions on board, 
and the erratic course we were forced to take to avoid U-boat attacks. But from what I was told later, we were lucky to make it to Gibraltar at all, although it had never occurred to me for a moment how much danger we were in. Such a state was I in about how much time I was wasting, and the baby due any day. Knowing from your letter how alone you were going to be, I had so much made up my mind to be there, while with every delay and diversion there was less and less of a chance of my making it. And now here I am writing about it as if it had already happened, even though a part of me still refuses to give up. Gibraltar is a little less chaotic than Algiers and better organized to deal with any kind of situation, but I still not found a way to get out. You're probably aware that it's the nearest British territory to London, and the Germans have occupied more or less everything in between, so the only way to get out is in one long hop, and all flights of whatever kind are in very high demand. The trouble is I'm such a low priority, and have very little chance of getting myself onto one of those vital lists that apparently increase your chances. Nothing, of course, is guaranteed. I learned that this week, and it's certainly a large test of one's patience to have to keep turning up at HQ, which is what they tell me to do, and be rejected again and again. It makes it worse to realize I must have missed at least one letter from you. They've got no place to forward them to from the hospital, and so I have no way of finding out how you're doing. All I can do is keep trying, Becker, and hope that my luck will turn. It would be wonderful to imagine this letter arriving after me, but failing that, at least, I hope I'll be with you soon. Much love, Kyle. P.S. I've been told that the postal service is faster than most from the U.K. to Gibraltar. If you get this, and in case I'm delayed further, write to me. Military HQ, Gibraltar, and there'll be a place I'll be able to pick it up.